You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Are we on? I got it right. Hey. All right, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. And happy Father's Day to all you fathers. I want to also welcome those who are with us online this morning. Uh, it is a beautiful day that the Lord has made. Amen? Amen. As I think back on Father's Day for me, uh, golly, it's my dad being passed away, and I buried what I call my second dad last Sunday. Uh, I think about all the men that have had a part or played a part in my life and getting to where God's got me today and being godly men, faithful men, and helping me to grow in Christ and understand the things maybe a little bit better about the world that we live in today and, and how to deal with it. Uh, you know, it, there's so many things that go through a person's mind, you know. I have a lot of memories of my dad, like I said, uh, the things that he taught me and the uh, the whippings that I got. But I'm sure they were well deserved. Uh, as most of you know, I kind of like sports a little bit, and that was probably one of the worst beatings that I ever got was over a, a softball glove, a baseball glove at that time. Uh, you know, Dad bought me a baseball glove, and that was something rare for our family because we didn't get new stuff like that out in the country where I lived at, you know. And, me and him playing catch out there while I was playing basketball and baseball and a little bit of everything else. Well, when I got through playing catch, I left my glove in the yard. And my dad found it the next morning when he got up to go to work. And when he got home, he wanted to play catch. Well, I didn't have no glove. He had it. And you're talking about someone who felt really bad, really bad. And when he finally did show it to me, it was really bad. For me. But I look back at those things and I think about the growth that it took. That, you know, I'm not saying you need to half kill your children. He didn't half kill me, but he taught me, you know, the, the value of a dollar and what it means to have a dollar. And today in this world we live in, it seems like everything's all about the dollar. And, but anyway, just, just to make a long story short, I miss my dad. And like Jeff said, if yours is alive, pat him on the back. Tell him you love him, you know, because I'd do anything to tell mine one more time. I love you, Dad. But I'm sure today in him, me and him, the relationship that we had was very close, me being the only boy, as y'all know, two sisters, one older, one younger, me in the middle. So naturally, I was the favorite. My sisters don't see it like that, but I do. But me and my dad had a special bond in the fact that we could talk about things and work things out. Even as I got older and, and I was in my 50s and my dad was in his 70s, and, and just actually being able to share the gospel with him, the questions that he had for me as a young man, but being diligent to the word of God and being able to sit down with him and tell him something that he didn't already know because I thought my dad knew everything because he taught me so much. But like I said, today is Father's Day. Honor them, bless them. Hey, I'm sure everyone's got memories of them, uh, but that's not what we're here for this morning. We're here this morning to praise and honor our Father and our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? So if you got a copy of God's Word this morning, let's go ahead and get started, because, well, I'll try to have you here. I ain't promised. Matthew chapter five, Beatitudes. I trust everyone is getting something from this message that Jesus has as he preaches at the Sermon on the Mount and as he's going through these Beatitudes and the things, you know, it, I, I'm just amazed at how he starts off with blessed, and for me that's happiness, okay? Happiness. Happy are those. Happy are they. Happy are they. But we're going to be in verse 5 today. Uh, no, we're not. We're going to be in the merciful. We're going to be in 7. I want to go back and do 5 again. I did 5 the last time, didn't I? That tells you I'm getting old, right? 
Verse 7 says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's pray. Father and our God, this morning, as we come to you, Lord, just thanking you again for this day. God, we just thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. God, that you bestow on us each and every day, Lord. We just thank you for standing with us through it all, being with us no matter what we face, no matter what we're going through, no matter what broken things step in front of us. Lord, we know you're there, and we know you take care of us. God, I just thank you again for this opportunity for this morning. God, that we lift up you, Lord, as only we can, that all the things that are said and done today here, Lord, will be for the glorification of your kingdom and the upbuilding of it. And God, that we will honor and obey you through it all. For it's in Christ Jesus' name, amen. So this morning as we're talking about being merciful and we go back and look at what mercy means and we think about the different meanings of it as far as the Greek word for merciful in Matthew 7 is elio. Jeff, if I'm getting this wrong, please correct me, brother, because I'm not a Greek speaker, okay? I do... Fairly decent with English. Not real good, but fairly good. I can do Robinson County English. Let me put it like that. <laughs> Got Elio, Elimon, from Elias. It means to have compassion or show pity to another who is in deep need. To show, to have compassion or show pity on another who's in deep need. The word mercy is defined in our dictionary as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to harm or punish. Hmm. Robert, what are you talking about here? First of all, if you are blessed with sorrow for your own failings, which is the second beatitude that we've already went through. Go back and look at these here. You can apply these right here. As you go down through them, you can apply them to ones later on. If you are blessed with sorrow for your own failings, which is mourning, which is the second beatitude, and with right relationship, which is the fourth beatitude, you will not find it difficult to show mercy to others on the job or anywhere else. So if you go through these Beatitudes as you travel through them and put them into use and think, is this where I'm at? Am I going through these? Am I mourning my own failings? Is helping me to grow closer to Christ. Okay? My righteousness, is it getting better or worse and getting closer to Christ? Okay, this helps me to understand that I can show mercy and compassion anywhere I'm at. It's easy to show love and compassion in the church house, right? Amen? Come on now. It's easy to show compassion in here, but when we go out those doors, what happens? Do we take off the Jesus suit, fold it up, put it in the back seat of the car, and leave it there till next Sunday? Is that the way we are? Is that the kind of disciples we are? You know, that, that, that's another, another subject that we have been talking about. And I'm not only talking about me, I'm talking about other pastors that I'm associated with in the different areas, Pembroke area, uh, St. Paul's area, Fairmont area, uh, is disciples. You know, it, as a believer in Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. And you have an opportunity, you have a job to do. And that's to make other disciples. As Jesus came on the scene, he picked 12 good men. And he trained those 12 good men, which is what he's doing right here with the Sermon on the Mount. He's training them to be disciples so that when he goes on, there'll be someone left here to continue the gospel, the sharing of it with others. As I think about the godly men that helped me get to where I'm at, they're passing away. So who does that pass the baton to now? You know, I, I kind of think about kind of think about it like the book of Esther, where if you came in and the king didn't extend the scepter, you know what happened, right? Well, I feel like the scepter's being passed down. It's being passed to us. We're disciples, okay? We're one of the twelve. Jesus is teaching you here what to do. It says if you are blessed with sorrow, have you learned anything from your failings as far as what's going on in your life? You know, I think about the book of James where it says our trials will help us to grow. We become stronger from our failings. We have to learn, first of all, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a type of mercy. So in aiding someone whom we have, have no obligation to help or forbearing to exploit someone's vulnerability. Forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that? 
Are you quick to offer forgiveness to someone who wrongs you? Or do you get in the flesh and want to lay hands on them? It's so easy for us to get into the flesh today, folks, because we have that hate that we're born with. We're born in sin. We're shaped in iniquity. So the hate's there. What we got to get is something to overcome that hate. And what overcomes hate? Love. Where does that come from? The greatest of these is love. It comes from God. Amen. It comes from Christ. It comes from being one of his children. We're to love as he loved and get rid of the hate. We're to forgive as Jesus forgave. God forgave us. It would have been so easy for God to say, I'm going to just turn my back on those who turned their back on me and just go with the ones that accept me. Amen. I'm so glad he didn't. I'm so glad he showed mercy to me because I was going down the wrong road. I was living in that dark alley, that darkness. And someone shared the gospel with me. Some disciple of Jesus came and shared the gospel with me and showed me the light that I could come out of darkness and live according to the way he wanted me to live. Someone showed mercy. Someone showed forgiveness. Mercy in all these senses is driving forth, is the driving forth for Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. Through him, our sins are forgiven, and we ourselves receive aid by the gift of God's Spirit. The Spirit's reason for showing us this mercy is simply that God loved us. It's just that simple. The reason for this showing of mercy is simply that God loves us. Now, as a disciple of Christ this morning, I'm one of God's children. So I have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of me. All of those things put into action should represent love, right? No matter what I'm doing, no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm faced with, love should be at the bottom of it all, amen? So therefore, I'm able to show mercy to someone who wrongs me, okay, in a way that's pleasing to the Father as well as to the person in front of us. It's so easy to hate. It's so easy to point a finger. You know, we had prayer breakfast yesterday morning over in Fairmont, and Brother Brooke, Paul Brooks spoke, did an awesome job. After it was over, there was a pastor friend came up to us, me and Gerbers was sitting at the same table and a pastor friend of ours came up to us and he was broken. This is a pastor. He's been pastoring for over seven years but he was broken because of the hate and I said hate folks, the hate that he had in his heart for another human being who he thought was misleading his son into that dark place but he had hate for that individual and he treated the individual with such. Is that showing grace and mercy and compassion? He should have been showing love to that individual, right? Because the person that he hated was lost. Lost people are going to live that way. And we've got to show them love. They see hate every day. They see hate in the world every day. LGBTQ, they see hate every day. Same-sex marriage, hate every day. Abortion, hate every day. When do they see love? When do they see the love? I'm not saying to change your morals. I'm not saying I go along with any of those things, folks. But we've got to love those people. We're not going to win them to Jesus with hate words. It's not going to happen. We've got to show love. Some way, shape, form, or fashion. Jesus showed love, compassion, and mercy no matter where he went. Amen? He was performing miracles. He was feeding the sick. He was doing all the things that the Father wanted him to do. And all he asked us to do is love thy neighbor as thyself and love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. Two little things. Two. Not 613. Not 613 commands that was given by the Jewish customs. The law, if you want to call it that, just two. And we can't live up to it. 
mercy, forgiveness, love, compassion, pity, those kind of things. That's what we need to be sharing. That's what our people need to be seeing. That's what our neighbors need to be feeling from us as disciples of Jesus Christ this morning. If not, we're failing. We're failing, folks. We're not accomplishing the work that Jesus laid out for us to do. We need to be willing to step up and step out and put these things to work to show that there's happiness by being merciful. We shall obtain mercy. You know, as I think about this right here, I can't help but think about this, Jeff. I know it's not in, the, in, in here. I mean, it's in the Bible. But I think about the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man had it all while he was here on this earth. Amen. Lazarus had nothing. But when they died, Lazarus was laid up in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man found himself where? He lifted up his eyes, did he not? And he said, just, just send somebody. Send me some water. Send me a drop of something. And he said, ain't it amazing how when you were alive, you had it all. Lazarus had nothing, but Lazarus was merciful. God showed mercy on him, amen? Let's see what else Jesus did with mercy. Turn over to John chapter 8. We're going to transition over to there. And we're going to talk a little bit about John chapter 8. I know there's fried chicken waiting, but we'll get there. John chapter 8, uh, Jesus here is going to be tested again. But to get to that point, I feel like we need to go back and look at chapter 7, uh, bringing you up to date on what's going on in chapter 8. We need to understand that this is an extension of the events recorded in chapter 7 where Jesus was in Galilee. Okay, this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he selected his disciples, and this is where he conducted most of his ministry. He is there for the festival of the booths, or festival of the tabernacles, ever how you want to look at it. If you want to understand a little bit more about this, go to Leviticus 23, and it'll explain it to you. For those of you who like to read Leviticus and get all of these laws and all this stuff. <laughs> it's all good stuff. It has meaning, folks, trust me. Uh, the Festival of Tabernacles is like the Lord's Supper for the church. It is both memorial and prophetic. It all has something to do with uh, uh, being passed down from generation to generation. It all means something like when they were brought out of Egypt, which is what this pertains to. Okay, and it also pertains to them being restored back together. This is all a part of the festival. Uh, if you want to know exactly where to look for this at, it's Leviticus 23, verses 42 and 43. And one of them says this, the festival name derived from the fact that during its observance, the Israelites dwelt in booths or tabernacles. It began on the 15th day of the seventh month, Tishra, and lasted for seven days or one week. In chapter 8 here, we're going to see that the festival has just concluded and the chief priests and Pharisees were sad. Why were they sad? Because the festival concluded? I don't think so. If you go back and read chapter 7, verse 1, it says, and the Jews hated Jesus. Okay? The scribes and the priests were seeking to do what? Have him arrested, right? Have him taken out of commission. Let's get Jesus and get him out of the way. Well, while he was in the temple in chapter 7 teaching, he wanted them to arrest him. And they didn't. Why didn't they? Well, for one reason, another Pharisee stood up for Jesus. Who was this Pharisee? Nicodemus. You know who Nicodemus was, right? He was a Pharisee who went to Jesus by night, right? So he's standing up for Jesus and tells them this. What does it say? It says, the festival just concluded and chief priests and scribes were sad. Why? Because the temple police did not arrest Jesus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, told them publicly, told them out in front of everybody, he defended the non-arrest of his private act acquaintance by telling his colleagues that no one could be judged without a hearing. You can't arrest Jesus for teaching in the temple without a hearing. So therefore they were upset and mad, Amen. Can you imagine the hate that must be in these men's hearts? These men were seeking our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who had done everything that he could, that they could find no sin, no guile was found in Jesus' mouth, but yet these men wanted to condemn him and crucify him and get him out of the way. That's how much hate was in their heart. Now these men here had all of the Old Testament books, did they not? They had the scrolls. They were able to read them. 
But it's kind of like when the lawyer asked Jesus, and Jesus said, how do you read it? What were they reading? How were they reading it? What were they getting out of it? The same way with you here today. You're here today to hear a pastor bring a message. May have been here for Sunday school. May have been here for the singing that we had. I don't know. But are you just here to listen? Because if you're just here to listen and not put it to work, then you're not doing what God wants you to do. He didn't gather you here today together just to hear me or Brother Jeff if you didn't know I was speaking. He brought you here to hear it and take it out and do something with it. So they didn't arrest him. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests are all upset. They're all mad. So what happens next? The scribes and Pharisees attempt to put Jesus on trial. This is where we begin chapter 8. This is where chapter 8 begins right here. They're, they're, they're putting Jesus on trial or attempting to put Jesus on trial. And it says this. Verse 1 says this. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he come again, he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though that he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So as we look at that right there and we see what's taking place and all the people that are, taking, that are involved here, you've got the accused, the accusers, and the judge, right? Those are the three people that we're focused on here in this one passage of Scripture right here. But for me, as I go back and look at this, and I go back, uh, well, all of the verses have significance for me. When you think about the Mount of Olives that sits up above Galilee, he was able to look down, and you're all the time hearing about Jesus going up into the mountains, getting off by himself, and doing what? Praying to the Father, amen? Seeking guidance, seeking something. Give me something, Father. Help me here. So when I think about this and read this, these are things that I kind of look at when I'm trying to read it. It says, early in the morning he came again into the temple, and it says all the people came. And like I said before, all the people came. Not just the Gentiles, not just the Jews, not just those who believed in Jesus and not those who didn't. All the people came into the temple, and Jesus taught them. Guess what he taught them? The same thing. There wasn't different lessons for different people, folks. It's not that way today either. There's one God, one gospel. One God, one gospel. That's what Jesus taught. And it says here he taught it to all, not just some. So if we're standing up here preaching the gospel, then is that not some form of teaching? You're sitting out there listening. Is that not some form of teaching? Then what are you doing with it? It's still one God and one gospel game. It don't change. It don't change whether we're in this building, Baltimore, Broad Ridge, St. Paul's Community Church. It don't matter. At the golf course, at the tennis courts, at the soccer matches, vacation Bible school, the gospel's the same. It doesn't change. But it says he's taught them, and he said, the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. What do you see wrong here? What do you see that stands out the most here? For me, there's three things. 
The first thing is this. The law said that when someone was taken in adultery, both the man and the woman were to be punished. How many do you see here? Where's the man? Where's the man at? Sounds to me like they might have done a little setting up here, don't you think? Somebody was being used as a pawn so that they could trap somebody else, amen? They brought something going on here. Now, you got to understand, the ones that are doing this are the ones that know the law to the T. They know it inside and out. But yet, the one who wrote the law, guess what? Is the one they're trying to convict. And they still don't understand that. How does he keep getting away? You'd think they would catch on, amen? Come on. Why don't they catch on? It says the man and the woman were to be punished, but it says this, she was caught in the act. She was caught in the act. It would have been pretty easy to arrest a man as well, don't you think? If she was caught in the act, how easy would it have been to arrest a man? Second, since adultery was a criminal offense in the Jewish community, punishable by death, then it assumes that one would practice extreme discretion to prevent getting caught. You wouldn't do it out in public, amen? You try to hide it. Ain't that what you do with your sins now? We don't want to do them out where nobody can see them. We want to hide them. How many of you think like this right here? When the blue light comes on behind you and you get pulled over, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? I hope none of my friends don't ride by. I hope my mom and daddy don't see this. Right? Not that we were guilty of doing something wrong for the blue lights to come on to begin with. We're worried about something else. But at least if I was going to do something, I would try to do it where nobody wouldn't see it. Amen? Especially if you knew that it was punishable by death. You would choose a place that was far from sight and sound. It appears that the religious leaders knew where people went to have affairs. This woman was not caught. She was hunted down. She was set up. She was a subject matter to exploit Jesus Christ. She's going to turn the woman into a daughter just so Jesus would have to pass judgment on something here. They're trying to, to, to get, her, get him right where they want him. They're trying to just set him up and then bring him back down. It says here third, it says it's required. Third, this kind of offense required two or three witnesses by the law. You had to have two or three witnesses, folks. Two or three witnesses to confirm an accusation. These witnesses were never identified here, amen? They were never showed here. It never says anything about witnesses here. It says this was an accusation that was not explicitly corroborated by witnesses. In short, something is wrong here. This person who had a private affair has become a public pawn. Just like I said, public pawn, that's all. The religious leaders were uncommitted to her welfare and committed to destroying Jesus. They could have cared less about this woman. They were using her just to get to him. I know we don't do stuff like that, do we? We don't use people just to get something else, do we? That's not our style. They were willing to have her executed. They were willing to have her killed, Okay? as a means of discrediting what Christ had done. What had he done? Go back and read chapter 7. All he done was made a man whole on the Sabbath. He healed a man. But yet the Jews, if circumcision was needed, they did it on the Sabbath. They made a man whole as far as being a Jewish man, amen? That was part of their religious culture. But that was all right to do on Saturday. But making someone whole... As far as helping them ease pain and suffering, that was not all right. We got to do something to discredit this man. Morals, motives, methods, notwithstanding, the scribes and Pharisees presented a question to Jesus that would label him a hypocrite, regardless of how he responded. If he says stone her, then he contradicts his message of love. If he convicts her, and says, Stoner, he contradicts his message of love. Is that not what Jesus is sharing in the Gospels? Is that not what he's sharing with the people he comes in contact with? It's all about love, 
right? It says if he drops the charge, then he contradicts and mandates the law. What do you do? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. What do you do? You're between a rock and a hard place, right? You, you would think that they got him, right? But there again, what did we just talk about a few minutes ago? Mercy, grace, love, compassion, forgiveness, pity. Think about all those things. Think about what's going through your Savior's mind as he knows what's going through these scribes and Pharisees' mind. He knows what's going through this woman's mind because she's been sitting in front of thousands of people right there in the middle of the temple, put on display, and her sins pointed out to everybody. Does that sound familiar? If it don't, guess what? One day there's going to be a judgment and your sins are going to be pointed out to you. One day. Think about it. So what did Jesus do? It says they asked him the question. You know the law of Moses. You're supposed to be stoned. What sayest thou? Why did he even bring her? They said unto him, to him that he might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Wouldn't you like to know what he wrote? Come on now. Can't you just imagine? Like I said in the first verse, this is Robertology now. Don't quote me on this. But can't you imagine as they've asked this question about stoning and they're standing there and they say, we got him, we got him, we got him, we got him. And he just stoops down. And he writes Robert in the sand. He writes Jeff underneath that. And he writes Ryan. And he writes Eddie underneath that. And they sitting there saying, what is he doing? He's just playing in the dirt. And it says, and when they had continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And it says again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he's got their names wrote down and they see it. Now do you think he might have wrote their sins down beside their name? And they're like, uh-oh, we need to get that erased. We don't need nobody to see that. We need to get a rate and get rid of that. We need to get out of here. This man here is psychic, amen? He knows something. He's got our name down there, and I committed that scene yesterday and that and the day before, and oh, no. Think about those things now. He knows all. He knew their hearts. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were after. But what did he say? What does it say here? It says Jesus found her guilty, okay? She was guilty of what she had done, no doubt. Jesus knew that because he knows our hearts. Amen? He knows when we're guilty. Even when we don't want to admit it, guess what? He's still interceding for us at the Father. He knows when we're guilty. He just wants us to be open and honest about it. It's too simple. But he finds her guilty. It says she was declared guilty and should be stoned only by those whose moral authority exceeded hers. Is your moral authority better than anybody else's in this room? I don't think so. You may think so, but I don't. But it says this, but although found guilty, she was also forgiven and given a chance for redemption. Even though she was guilty, she was found not guilty. She was found guilty, but she was forgiven. I'm so glad today God forgave me. I'm so glad today he gave me that second chance for redeeming myself before him and living a life that would be pleasing to him even though I know I still fail on a daily basis. I'm so thankful that I have that second chance today. She was given a second chance. So like I said before, as you think about what's going on here, you got the accusers, the accused, and the judge. Now, here's what I got for you. What did this verdict mean for the accusers? What did this verdict mean of guilty mean for the people that were trying to accuse her? It meant that they were just as guilty as the accused. The scribes and Pharisees were just as guilty as she was. 
just as guilty. Jesus helped him to realize that the sinner was being judged by a jury of her peers. Jesus' verdict forced him to see that what they were doing to her in public was just as bad as what she did in private. It's no difference. And Jesus just points that out to them simply by saying one little verse here. One little thing. Well, he actually did write in the sand. I imagine that had a great influence on what he, what he said. A little back, backing, if you will. It says their evidence was partial and their judgment was misguided. That's why the Bible tells us not to judge, because our judgment is misguided. Do you understand this right here? That of all the people that were there, all these people that were there, how many of them could judge? It was one. Jesus was the only one that could have judged this woman. He was the only one there without sin. He was the only one there that was righteous. He was the only one there that could pass judgment on this woman. He can pass judgment on the Pharisees, on the scribe, on the priest, on any of the people that was out there listening to him. He could do it. But he's the only one. So what does this verdict mean for the accused? It meant that God did not condone her actions. God did not condone her actions. He didn't go along with what she was doing, but he also did not condemn her weaknesses. When we sin, it's usually in a time of weakness, is it not? We think there's no other way. You know, even my motto of deny, deny, deny. Even if you caught red-handed, deny, deny it. God don't condone that, folks. He don't condone our actions, but he also does not condemn our weaknesses. God knows my weaknesses. He knows what they are. I have to pray to him about giving me strength for those weaknesses every day. Why? Because Satan knows my weaknesses too, and he attacks me through those weaknesses. And therefore, I sin. Giving in. Not strong enough. It taught her that God hates sin but loves sinners. How do we know this? How do we know that God hates sin but loves sinners? John 3, 16 and 17 tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Does that tell you God hates sin? Does that tell you that God loves, loves? Well, what else does it say? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't send Jesus to condemn us. He sent us to save us. It would have been so easy to condemn me, to turn his back on me, but he didn't. For God so loved the world. He didn't just say he loved part of the world. He didn't say he just loved the priest and the scribes. He loved the world. And he loved it enough to send his son to die for us. That's why Jesus is willing to teach all people, no matter who they are when they come in. The same way we need to be, no matter where we are. Red, green, yellow, black, or white, they're precious in his sight. Amen? We need to be telling everybody about Jesus. So what does this verdict mean for us? This verdict means three things. First, the verdict means that we should examine ourselves before we examine others. There again, Baptists don't have this problem. I know that. I don't know why I even put that in because Baptist believers don't have this problem. We already know ourselves, don't we? We know who we are. I go to church on Sunday. I pay my tithes. I shake the preacher's hand. Sometimes I don't want to, but I do. So that makes me all right. Amen. Come on. We need to examine ourselves. As a believer, am I Christ-like? Am I a disciple of his in living and walking and talking? When people look at me, do they see a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do they see somebody who is different, that is peculiar, that is changed? Or do they just see a person that's part of the world? What do they see? Do they see somebody that's willing to forgive and forget? Do they see somebody that's willing to have a little compassion? 
Does he see somebody that's willing to give it all whenever God says give it all? Is that what they see? We need to examine ourselves. Or did they see somebody that's willing to turn their back on someone that's in need? Don't want to lend a helping hand. Don't want to help out at all. Don't want to come out here next week and watch kids play games or whatever they're going to do during the vacation Bible school. I can be perfectly honest with you about that this morning too. I want you to know something. I learned more in Awana than I have in any Sunday school class I've ever been in. I want y'all to understand that. And if it wasn't for my wife who's watching at home because she couldn't be here today because she's taking care of her mom, I don't know where I'd be. But I'm telling you, and sitting there listening to those kids recite those Bible verses, it got me to thinking. And it got me to reading. And it got me to picking up the book and turning and flipping pages. Well, you need to turn back over there and look at John chapter 4, and then you need to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you start looking and you start reading and you start figuring out, I'm not where God wants me. The merciful God that I serve, the one that forgave me of my sins, that accepted me into his home, I'm not where he wants me. And that's what it takes to figure it out. So you need to figure it out. You need to examine yourself. We should remove the telephone poles from our own eyes before we seem to extract the toothpick from others' eyes. We should reflect on whether the things we despise in others are really the things that we despise about ourselves. Have you got something in your life that you despise? Is there something going on in you that you don't like, but you can't get rid of it, you can't change it? So rather than that, you just get upset with the people that are doing it out there, doing the same thing you are, but you get upset at them about it. We should not judge others by what they do, but then judge them, but then judge ourselves by our intentions. We should not judge others for what they do and then judge ourselves by our own intention. Oh, well, I went by his house, but I didn't stop. Does that count? The family just had a death, and I didn't stop by. Lady right down the road stays probably a mile from us, coming back from the golf course yesterday. Sign outside, slow, deaf in family. Coming through there, reef on the door. Do I stop or do I keep going? I don't know who lives there. Does that matter? Should it? Absolutely not. It don't hurt to stop, park side of the road, get out, walk up to the house, knock on the door and say, look, I'm sorry for your loss. Is there anything I can do? They ain't got to know that I come to Hyde Park or Poduck Baptist. It don't make no difference. I'm a child of God. That's what I should do. Be willing to reach out and help. That's loving thy neighbor, is it not? Second, the verdict reminds us that we are all sinners in the eyes of a holy God. We are all sinners in the eyes of a holy God. You say, wait a minute now, brother. Me, a sinner? Can you imagine that? I go to Hyde Park Church. They don't allow sinners in there. What? Come on now. Listen to this. We may be good-looking sinners... We may be financially secure sinners. We may be well-educated sinners. We may be tall sinners. We may be short sinners. We may be young, middle-aged, or old sinners. We may be married, single, single again sinners. We may be sinners with 20-20 vision. We may be sinners that have corrected vision. We may be pulpit sinners, pew sinners, choir law sinners, if we live near the church, then we are community-based sinners. If we live far from the church, then we are commuting sinners. We sin by word, thought, deed, commission, and omission, serially and in parallel fashion, alone and in groups. We sin against family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, ourselves, and God. 
We see it in the AM and we see it in the PM. Regardless of the category, classification, or location or station, age or stage, condition or position, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care who you are, where you are, or what you're doing, you're a sinner. You can take it and like it or lump it. Doesn't matter. But we're sinners saved by grace, folks. That's all. Without him living inside of us, we are nothing. Filthy rags in the sight of God is the best that I can be. But I thank God that he allows that. Come as you are mentality. I want all to come to know the Son. I want all to come to the Father. But we've all sinned. Third, the verdict means that we can be forgiven. Okay? This verdict means that we can be forgiven by Jesus finding her guilty, but not condoning her weaknesses and forgiving her. We can find forgiveness in the love and grace of God through Jesus Christ. It means that we can be translated from darkness to light. Think about yourself now. Think about yourself before you became a believer. It says it means that we are headed in the wrong direction and that God allows U-turns. It means that if anyone is in Christ, old things pass away and all things are made new. It means that tomorrow does not have to be negated by my yesterday and that my history does not have to dictate my destiny. It means that the image of who I used to be does not have to serve as the blueprint for who I can be. It means that the windshield of my future is more important than the rearview mirror of my past. Looking forward. You know, as I read this and think about this, I'm thinking about the whole armor of God, putting it on. It's on the front, amen? We're going forward, are we not? We're moving for Christ. We're taking what Christ gives us as a disciple for him. I'm moving forward and sharing the gospel. So I have the whole armor of Christ on. I'm not looking behind me in the rearview mirror. It means that as far as God is concerned, where I'm going is more important than where I've been. Where I'm going is more important than where I've been. I'm going to heaven, folks. I don't know about y'all, but that excites me. Come on now. I'm tickled to death. You can't tell it, can you? God knows me as one of his children today. And he's got a home waiting for me. And I'm going to get to go. And guess who I'm going to get to see? I'm going to get to see my dad. And if I'm still here, when Jesus decides to step out on the cloud, my dad's going to rise first, so he's going to get to see Jesus first, and then those who remain will be caught up in the air to meet him, right? So I'll get to see my dad and Jesus at the same time. Amen? Come on. So what's waiting here for me? Nothing. It means that while Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. It means that whenever I've run out of chances with people, that I still have a chance with God. It means that I am guilty, but forgiven. I'm guilty, folks. I'm guilty of sin. But thank God I'm saved by grace. This morning in closing, I want to challenge you. I want you to search yourselves and ask yourself this question. Where do I see myself in this text? The text that we just read here in chapter 8, where do you see yourself? Do you identify with the accusers as someone who finds fault with everybody and everything because it hurts too much to face your own shortcomings? Do I want to stone others because I see the depth of my own sin reflected in them? Perhaps I've never stoned anyone, but I've killed someone's self-worth and public reputation with my mouth. Do I seek to punish others for the wickedness and weakness in my own life? Are my criticisms of others a projection of my own self-love? Do I want to hurt others because perhaps someone once hurt me? And I got here, after all, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Brokenness, okay? Broken people who don't have a clear outlook of who our Savior is. Okay, and I'm not saying they're the only ones because I've had people, even in the church, like I said, pastor for seven years, broken because of the way he was treating someone he thought. He thought, he judged, was doing wrong to someone in his family. Broken people, hurt people, 
hurt people. Do you identify with the accused? You're doing something in secret. What I hope is never discovered. Is that you? Do you do stuff in secret? Am I, giving, am I guilty of having an inconsistent lifestyle? Are you Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? I don't know. You have to answer these questions. It says here, am I guilty of being committed to Christ on Sunday but violating that relationship during the week? Or am I like Nicodemus, someone who seeks Christ at night but does not acknowledge him during the day? I hope that's none of us. Does my character look the same in the moonlight and in the sunlight? And in closing, I'll say this. If there are any guilty folks here, any more misfits who need the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, we ask that you come forward so that everyone can pray with you and help you find the answers. If you're not if you're not Percival, Percival Perfect or Polly Purebred this morning, okay? And I hope we don't have any of those because there's none perfect, no, not one. If you're dealing with something this morning, first of all, you need to seek forgiveness from God. And then you need to forgive yourself. Okay, once you get forgiveness from him, it should be clean and covered then to where you can move forward where you can go out and be the disciple that he wants you to be in a lost and dying world. The training is here. You got to listen. You got to pay attention. And you got to be obedient and be willing to do what he wants you to do. Because if not, you just listen. If you want to know how to show grace, love, mercy, compassion, do all of these things and have forgiveness for others, then you need to have a Christ-like heart. Those of you who have it this morning, I salute you. But those of you who don't have it this morning, today could be the day. The day is the day of salvation. I pray that if there's one here under the sound of my voice that don't know you, that today would be the day that you come to know him, that you would learn what the gospel really means and the love that God has for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.